It's a joy to be with you this morning, always is, to gather together and worship our God in spirit and in truth, and I certainly hope that the lesson of the hour will likewise be encouraging and edifying and instructive. We've been studying the book of Acts in the auditorium class for some time now, and we're about to study Acts chapter 16 this morning, Lord willing, in the next hour. But we've started to notice some things, as is a very common theme in the book of Acts, as it pertains to miraculous gifts of the Spirit and how those were given, what purpose they served. And so we're reading some things in some situations that I think we're familiar with because being members of the church, we've been given time to studying God's Word, but we're not familiar with them in regard to our own experiences It's interesting that in Hebrews, the sixth chapter, the Hebrew writer launched into, at the end of chapter five, some reproof of the brethren for a lack of growth. They should have been able to teach by this time, but at this point, they're in need of being taught even the fundamental principles of the gospel. He calls it the milk of the word because mature people can consume the meat of the word. It's interesting to me. One of the things that he mentions there as it pertains to the milk of the word or elementary principles of Christ is of the laying on of hands. The reason that's interesting to me is because I think that we all hear at least to some degree, some may be more familiar and well versed in it than others, understand that the laying on of hands has reference to the impartation of spiritual gifts, at least in part. But we see that phrase And that concept of the laying on of hands several times throughout Scripture, especially as we consider the historical book of the church that is the book of Acts. And to them, the Hebrew writer by inspiration says that it's milk. That's elementary. But I think that the laying on of hands and spiritual gifts and miracles and their purpose and and what they were for, what they weren't for, and all of that kind of stuff is not necessarily something that we would associate with milk or elementary principles today. I think that as we grow in the faith, it becomes more fundamental as we know the rest of Scripture and we see how fundamental and foundational it is to the church, to the faith, to the Word of God. But I think initially we'd kind of balk at this idea that it's milk, that it is elementary, that it is one of the simpler things to understand. Because certainly it's, it's a challenge to us at times. I think maybe the reason it becomes more of a challenge to us is because they were very well familiar with the very process and themselves had experienced the gifts imparted through the laying on of hands. But as we'll notice in a moment, that has ceased. We no longer have that today. And I think because of that, it has become a little more of a meaty or difficult topic at times. But let me assure you, it really isn't difficult. It's pretty straightforward. I think the difficulty comes, and we'll look at some passages at the end of this lesson. The difficulty comes in discerning in various contexts whether or not laying on of hands has to do with the imparting of spiritual gifts or whether it was simply something that was physically done with no significance whatsoever or what the significance was as it pertains to some other situation and context. And so I just want to think about that for a moment this morning 
and perhaps it will give us a greater understanding going forward in the book of Acts and looking into the epistles as well and considering what place this had in the New Testament context. The laying on of hands was a symbolic act. It was something that lacked any significance in regard to the actual physical action. No more than it has when we would touch each other. And in fact, there is, while there's that picture of the hands being laid on the head of another, there's never really a description of that in the New Testament of exactly what that entailed. Laying hands on is physical contact with the hands. And so a handshake could be considered laying hands on someone Um, hugging someone, laying hands on someone. And so there's no specific method or mode that renders any significance to the activity whatsoever. It's a symbolic gesture, and it indicates several things throughout the Bible. I want us to notice in Leviticus chapter 3, we see that it had an indication of the offerings being earmarked and given to the Lord. In Leviticus 3, concerning the peace offering, It said, when his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers it to the Lord, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. In chapter 4 of Leviticus, in verse 4, concerning the sin offering, he shall bring it to the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the bull's head and kill the bull before the Lord. They were to lay their hands upon the animal to identify themselves with the animal being offered. This is my offering for my sin, for my service to God, to the Lord. That's what it did. It didn't change the animal. It didn't change the activity. It signified the identification of the person with it. And certainly there with the offerings, it was commanded. In Genesis chapter 48, we see it and as well as other places in reference to the bestowal of a blessing. In Genesis 48 and verse 14, Jacob, that is Israel, stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, so on and so forth, bless these lads, he would say. And so it was associated with a blessing. Hebrews 11 said that Jacob did that by faith and we're impressed by it. But it is also associated with, and this is probably something we're more familiar with, and I know we're going through these fast, but it's to demonstrate the broad association with the act. It doesn't just mean one thing. What we're probably more familiar with is the consecration of individuals to a work associated with the laying on of hands. Notice in Numbers chapter 8 and in verse 10, speaking of the Levitical tribe, the Lord commanded, you shall bring the Levites before the Lord and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. You notice then in verse 14, it says, thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel And the Levite shall be mine. After that, the Levite shall go in to the service of the tabernacle of meeting. And so of all the children of Israel, a certain tribe was set apart by God for a special service and to indicate to the rest of the nation that it's this tribe, these peoples, the hands were laid on them in the presence of many. 
And very similarly, you had Aaron and his sons consecrated to the priesthood in a very public manner. Notice in Numbers 27 and verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Verse 18 of Numbers 27. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar, the priest, and and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. You shall give him give some of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He says, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by judgment of the Urim and his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded. He took Joshua, set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. The reason I wanted to read that lengthy passage was to demonstrate the public nature of it, the setting before the children of Israel, and to demonstrate that there was no special significance in the laying on of hands as it pertained to any special thing happening, but as an indication, as a symbol. God gave the command that Joshua would take Moses' place. God gave the command to give him some authority so they can start picking up on this. They'll obey Joshua. They'll follow him as leader. No longer Moses when Moses would pass and Joshua would lead them into the land. And the laying on of hands showed them there was a physical, visual significance there so they could see that now the torch is being passed, so to speak. We read in Acts 13 something similar where the spirit of the Lord through prophets had told the brethren, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so the spirit is instructing for them to send Barnabas and Saul or Paul. That's what the spirit is instructing. They are going to the Gentiles. They have a mission to go on and you need to send them out. And it says in verse three, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. You notice the spirit didn't command for them to lay hands on them. The spirit said, I have separated them to a work. I've called them to work and you send them out. You separate them. And they determined it was appropriate to have this symbolic act, have this visual act separate them to that special work. There was no impartation of spiritual gifts at this point. Paul is an apostle. He'd tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 11 that um, I ought to have been commended by you for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles. He explained truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. When there was an apostle there was proof through the miracles that they were already performing. He did not receive spiritual gifts at this time. And so what we see, there was no special significance necessarily. It, it was a visual representation of them sending these men out that the Holy Spirit had chosen. No spiritual gifts were imparted. The Holy Spirit himself did not command that they lay hands on him. And so we have an approved example, but by no means a requirement to validate any setting of men to specific works. But then we see throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter that when miraculous healing took place, it by no means necessitated the laying on of hands. 
But many times there was the laying on of hands. In Mark 6 and verse 5, when Jesus was rejected by his own people in Nazareth, it says he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. You might remember in Acts 9 and verses 12 and 17, Ananias was instructed to lay his hands on Paul so that he could receive his sight, and that's exactly what happened. And in Acts 28 and verse 8, the apostle Paul laid hands on Publius who lay sick with a fever, and he healed him. And then we have our main focus for the lesson of this hour. In Acts the 8th chapter, as we had studied previously, when Samaria received the gospel and the apostles in Jerusalem became aware of this, they sent Peter and John to them, it says in verse 15, who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. We see the same thing in Acts the 19th chapter when the Apostle Paul is in Ephesus and he meets what is called some brethren and uh, the first thing that he thinks to ask them is whether they had received the Holy Spirit. He finds out that they had only been baptized in the baptism of John. And so when they were baptized in the name of the Lord, he laid his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. You might remember in the Roman letter that the Apostle Paul, though he does not specify laying on of hands, told them that he desired to come to them, that he may impart some spiritual gift and have a part to play in the work there. And so you see, it's not always to impart spiritual gifts. There were several things that were indicated by the laying on of hands. And in fact, as I mentioned before, you read several times they laid hands on them, but it was just a, a physical action. It was describing an activity that was taking place as someone was perhaps put in custody or someone was... Um, mistreated in some way. And I want us to think about what we just read there in Acts the 8th chapter. And I want us to think about some of the significance that pertains to it. You remember in Acts the 8th chapter, Philip, one of the seven that was mentioned in Acts chapter 6, goes to Samaria and he preaches the gospel and establishes the church there. There are, there are members of the church now who have believed the gospel he had preached as they saw the confirming signs and wonders, it tells us in verses 4 through 8. It tells us also that the pretender, Simon the sorcerer, he also believed when he saw the miracles and he was baptized and continued with Philip in verse 13. That's when we read there in verse 14, beginning what we just alluded to, that Jerusalem and the apostles there heard that there were people who obeyed the gospel in Samaria. And their immediate thought was they need the Holy Spirit. They need these spiritual gifts. So they sent Peter and they sent John. I want us to notice in verse 15. It says, when they, Peter and John, had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. That tells us a little bit about this laying on of hands. Remember in John, the 14th chapter, that Jesus had told them that you'll ask anything in my name. You'll do greater works than these and you'll ask anything in my name and it will be done for you. It makes it evident that the laying on of hands was no indication of their own power, but it was a connection between their appointment by God to this activity. They depended on God. They prayed to God first, and then 
he gave the Spirit to these people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12 and in verse 11, when we read of the spiritual gifts and they're enumerated, it tells us that the one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing each one individually as he wills. The Spirit is determining whether these brethren are going to receive gifts, which gifts they'll receive, who will receive what. And so what you have is the apostles, they are middlemen, if you will. It's only them. They're the only agents that God is using for this work. We'll see it in a moment. But they are fully dependent upon Jesus. They're fully dependent upon God. They're fully dependent upon the Spirit. And they laid hands on them and they received the Spirit. And this is not to be confused from the baptism of the Holy Spirit because you remember in that, that was a direct from heaven to man. There was no human agency. And so here you have the laying on of hands that is necessary and the imparting of these gifts. Now, what I want us to be impressed by is what Simon saw there in verse 18. It says, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, give me this power that anyone on whom I lay my hands or lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon specifically saw that it was the laying on of the apostles' hands. And he demonstrated by his words that that was a specific power. You see, he had seen Philip work many miracles to this point, but he had never seen this power worked by Philip. This power was only seen with the apostles laying their hands, and he asked for that power and, of course, sinned in doing so. I want to suggest to you that there are two implications to what we see here. There's the implication in this context of urgency. This was an urgent matter. This was a necessity. This was a very important matter that they were quick to do. And it was an exclusive matter. In verses 14 through 16, as soon as they heard that Samaria had received the gospel and obeyed it, they sent Peter and John. That was their first thought. They received the gospel. We need to send someone to give them these gifts. They need the word of God. And we'll see that in a moment. In fact, in Acts the 19th chapter, as we alluded to a time when Paul was in Ephesus, the first thing he asked these people was, have you received the Holy Spirit? It's urgent. This is something important. This is something that they need. And it's exclusive. In verse six of the eighth chapter, they heeded the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Even Simon realized his own fraudulency in comparison and contrast to the miracles performed by this man of faith, Philip, but he could not impart the gifts themselves. Someone imparted them to him is the implication. He could not give them to others. So that power, as Simon indicates by his hand, by his words, is exclusive simply to, in context, the apostles. I want us to flesh that out a little bit, the urgency and the exclusivity of the idea of laying on of hands to impart spiritual gifts. Let me suggest to you that the urgency can be better explained and understood in the timeline of the church. We're at the very beginning. We're early on. We're in the process of the revelation of the New Testament. Isaiah, the second chapter, when the prophecy of the Messianic kingdom was given through Isaiah, it told us that from the mountain of the Lord and from Jerusalem, the word of God will go forth. 
the Word of God is going forth. The Word of God is being revealed. They're being taught by God through Jesus and the apostles' ministry. And so not everything is revealed to this point. Spiritual gifts are a necessity here in the first century. Notice that in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when he's speaking of love there, he contrasts it with these spiritual gifts, explaining in verse 8 that love never fails. And the idea is that it never stops, it never ceases. I know that we like to use that in regard to how love just keeps on keeping on. Love, love never gives up. That's not what he's saying here. The contrast is love never stops. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. They'll stop. They'll cease. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. And notice the language of verses 11 and 12 as he gives some, some metaphors to illustrate this point. When I was a child... I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Again, a principle that we've used to demonstrate other points spiritually in our conversations and lessons and studies. But here he's talking about spiritual gifts and their necessity in these things. He explains furthermore in verse 12, elaborating on this. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall be known just as I am known. And you see the language in part, knowing all this has to do with the limited time of the inclusion of spiritual gifts in the history of the church. He's speaking of spiritual gifts. We see in chapter 12, he enumerates them in verses eight through 10. He told the Corinthians when he began the letter in chapter one and verse seven, that you came short in no gift. He demonstrates that they're all important in chapter 12 as they reveal and then confirm the revelation. But here he's showing them a more excellent way. I would suggest to you that there's two reasons love is a more excellent way than these spiritual gifts and desiring them. Love will never end. And love will never end because it is the focus of all that God is doing for us and all that we're doing for him. But the way we get to the love that is revealed and, and demonstrated and specified in Scripture is through the revelation of God's word. But here's the thing. They didn't have what we have right now. It was still being revealed. How are they going to have the love that God commands of them? How are they going to have the love God commands of them for each other? That's what these spiritual gifts were for. They reveal God's word. They instruct us in the love of Christ. And when all that revelation is complete, the love remains throughout eternity. God is love. But the gifts that revealed the word, they stop because we have the word which now produces that same love. And so you've got the, the longevity of it and also the importance of it as the whole focus. And you have this contrast between that which will fail, that which will never fail, that which is in part and that which is perfect. And the perfect there is not Jesus Christ in the second coming. The perfect there is the complete revelation of God's word, which is what he means in verse 11. We're in childhood now is what he's saying. We need these childish things. When we're mature, that is when that which is perfect has come. We don't need them any longer. But now we need them and we need them for edification. It explained the importance of prophecy over tongue speaking in chapter 14. 
You notice he says, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to man. Why? Because in contrast to tongue speaking without an interpreter, there's understanding. You're understanding and comprehending the information revealed by God through the spirit. That's the point. These spiritual gifts give us understanding of God's will. They reveal God's will. Verse 12, it explains, Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Desire the gifts, but so that you can impart through that, God through you, understanding and edify the church. And so this is urgent because they don't have copied New Testaments like we do, bound up and ready to go and study. That's still being written. That's still being revealed. They need the revelation of God's word to walk in the light, to walk in the truth. And so these spiritual gifts were given through the laying on of hands. And we see that throughout the book of Acts. We won't go through all these just yet, but in chapter six, you see Philip and Simon who are working miracles. You see that as well with Philip in chapter eight. In chapter 11, you see some other prophets that are spoken of, Agabus in chapter 13, some more prophets there in Antioch. In chapter 15, you're going to see Paul and Barnabas were both working miracles. Barnabas is not apostle. In chapter 32, you're going to see two specific men sent with them to Antioch to verify that the church there is standing for the truth, and it calls them prophets there. In chapter 21, you see Philip has some virgin daughters who are prophetesses, and so they received the gift of prophecy. Why why were they given those? And we don't. Because they didn't have the written word like we do. It was still being revealed. And so we have the urgency of it. They need God's word to walk in faith. And so they imparted spiritual gifts. But notice also that there is a necessary conclusion by the context of Acts 8 and 1 Corinthians 13 that it is exclusive and therefore it leads us to understand that they will cease. It's exclusive to the apostles. And the apostles being men eventually died, were murdered, and certainly martyred, many of them we know for sure, and then, and then some by tradition, but they would eventually die nonetheless. But they were the only ones that could impart the gifts. They could not even give the power to another to impart the gifts. That's what Simon asked for. And while he was sinning and asking for that in prideful reason, Philip, or, or rather Peter or John, couldn't have done it even if they wanted to, because it wasn't God's will, evidently. And then as we read in 1 Corinthians 13, when that which is in part or perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. Do away with childish things. We'll see as we see face to face. Jude 3 tells us that the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, it tells us that the power of God, and we pair that up with the power of God to salvation in the gospel, Romans 1.16, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul tells Timothy that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Well, in the context, certainly he has reference to the Old Testament Scriptures, which made Timothy wise to salvation, which are in Christ Jesus. In 2 Peter 3, we see Peter put his and the apostles' word and their writings on the same plane as the prophetic word of the Old Testament. All Scripture, even the apostolic doctrine, the New Testament, is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable and it thoroughly equips a man for every good work. And so there's the conclusion that these gifts have ceased. The apostles can't impart them anymore. They're dead. And they served their purpose. I want to tell you something. 
God is an intelligent being who acts with purpose. He doesn't just act flippantly. He doesn't act to show off. He acts with purpose. Every miracle that has ever been performed was performed by God through a man. Sometimes not through a man, but it's always the power of God that affects these miracles. And every single one of them had purpose to glorify him, to confirm a message that he was revealing, never just for some physical ephemeral matter, always for an eternal grander scale of glory to his name. And when the whole purpose of miracles was to reveal and confirm the word, and not only in the New Testament, we see that throughout the Old Testament, the association of revelation with miracles and the confirmation it provides. When the whole word is revealed, those miracles have no more purpose. I want to tell you, if their purpose was to heal people merely, to to feed people merely, then all would be healed, all would be fed. Why don't we have that anymore? People hunger, people ail, people die. These spiritual gifts had a purpose, and when the purpose is performed, then there is no need for it. Jesus' purpose in dying was fulfilled, and he says, I don't need to die anymore. He doesn't need to make another offering. It's the same thing here. The purpose of the miracles is accomplished, and so the miracles are no longer in existence. It's not because God is impotent. God has determined that was their purpose and he has fulfilled their purpose. Very quickly, I want us to think about some of the context where we see the laying on of hands. And we need to think about the context to determine what exactly is being discussed here by the laying on of hands. I think that while there are several purposes to the laying on of hands, as we've demonstrated so far, it seems to me in Hebrews the sixth chapter in verse two that it has reference to the imparting of spiritual gifts. I would not be dogmatic on that matter, But you notice there, tried after he mentions the doctrines of baptisms, which is plural. So there's more than just one washing. And you see that in the Old Testament. And maybe he's speaking about how they typify the one baptism, the water that washes away our sins by the will of God as it's an appeal to God for a clean conscience. But it certainly would include the baptism for the remission of sins, which Ephesians 4 says is the one baptism. And then right after that, it speaks about the laying on of hands. And we had just seen that when the apostles in Jerusalem realized that Samaria had received the gospel and they were baptized, Christians were made, they sent to have hands laid on them to impart gifts of the Spirit. And it may be significant that he places it in that order. Consider something we recently studied in Acts chapter 6 and verse 6. It says, speaking of those seven men that were set apart to the daily distribution of the widows, it says that, They laid hands on them after they prayed for them. I want us to notice some things in this context. In verse 2, and I know we're going fast, but in verse 2, the 12 apostles determined that they need to give time to the word and this daily distribution is taking us away from this. The Hellenists had a complaint. They needed to address that problem. But he said, we shouldn't leave the word of God and serve tables. So you seek out seven men and here's their, their qualifications, if you will, their characteristics you gotta look for in them. They're of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And then we will appoint over this business. And so you seek out the men with these characteristics and then bring them to us. We will appoint them. And that's exactly what we see in the fulfillment beginning in verse five. It pleased them and they chose Stephen and Philip and 
Prochorus and Cantor and, and Timon and Parmenas and so on and so forth. And then they set them before the apostles. So they looked for the men that had those characteristics. That parallels with the first part of the command of the apostles. And then when they found them and chose them, they set them before the apostles for the appointment. And that's when in verse six, it says that they laid hands on them. Both are parallel. You look for this in the men and choose them and then bring them to us to appoint them. They looked for it and found seven. They brought them to the apostles and they laid hands on them. The laying hands on them and the appointing them are exactly parallel. The reason I think we wonder what about the impartation of spiritual gifts is because in verse three, it says they've got to be full of the Holy Spirit. Does that have to do with spiritual gifts? Well, if it does, then they had the gifts before the laying on of hands, which shows that it wasn't to impart spiritual gifts. I don't believe that it was the fullness of spiritual gifts in verse three. You notice it's in between good reputation and wisdom. And the whole purpose is that these men are trustworthy to carry out the distribution of this money to the people in need. We can trust them. And it seems to me that it makes more sense that full of the Holy Spirit is like what we read in Ephesians 5, 18, be filled with the Spirit and the singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians 3, 16 parallels that with let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If you're walking in the Spirit, if you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, you're faithful Christians, then you can be trusted to deal with this situation faithfully. We can trust you. But then it says in verse 6 that they laid hands on them, parallel to appointing them. Well, where did their miraculous power come from? Because we see Stephen working signs and wonders. We see Philip doing it in chapter 8. We read about how that happened in chapter 8, but remember the urgency. The disciples immediately needed this for revelation. When Stephen and Philip obeyed the gospel, it can very well be concluded, necessarily, I believe, that they would have been given gifts of the Spirit that they are demonstrating they have at this time. And so before they ever are even appointed to this task, they're working miracles. They have that ability. They had hands laid on them to impart the Spirit. There's another interesting passage in 1 Timothy 5 and in verse 22 when Paul tells Timothy to lay hands on no one hastily nor share in other people's sins. And in this passage, it is oftentimes taken as an instruction to not appoint elders hastily because in the passage, in the context, he's speaking about elders who rule well or to be counted as worthy of double honor. Speaks about the laborer is worthy of his wages. But then he says, don't receive an accusation against any elder. So protect his reputation, protect his honor. He has an honorable position. And if people try to come up with phony charges that are unfounded, you don't need to be quick to receive an accusation. Let there first be two or three witnesses. Now, if it's confirmed, he says in verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. That's when he says in verse 21 to do these things without partiality. And then in verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins. What's, what's the context? The appointment of elders? No, he mentioned that in chapter three, the qualifications. Here it is a charge being brought against an elder and then rebuking and administering church discipline. And the laying on of hands has another connotation to it throughout scripture. It had to do with the reference of passing judgment on individuals. In Leviticus 24 and verse 14, it speaks about the witnesses putting their hands on the blasphemer and then stoning him. He's guilty. We heard him speak blasphemy. You remember in Acts chapter 5, the Sanhedrin laid hands on the apostles. They were passing judgment on them. You're guilty of something. 
and we're putting you in prison. That's a public thing. They were made a public spectacle. And here he says, you don't, you don't join in the sins of others and charging an elder with a sin when it's unfounded. There's not witnesses. And so the laying hands on here, I believe, has reference to the church discipline that would be administered. And lastly, and I know we went through these fast, but I hope that it just demonstrates that context determines. It's not always the imparting of spiritual gifts. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 14, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. He'd say in 2 Timothy 1 and in verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The question is, was this gift a miraculous spiritual gift? That is very possible. And there are those who believe that. That's not my position. But I want us to think about 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14. It says, stir up the gift of God which is in you or do not neglect the gift of God which is in you, which is given to you through the laying on of the hands of the eldership. But the eldership could not have imparted spiritual gifts. So that must not be the case here. But he does say through the laying on of my hands in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6, and Paul is an apostle with that ability. He wanted to go to Rome to impart some spiritual gift to have a part in that particular important work in Rome. But I want us to think about the combination of the two. The laying on of Paul's hands, the laying on of the eldership's hands, and you might remember Acts 13. When the Spirit had given them a work to go to, Paul and Barnabas, and he told the brethren there, separate them to that work, and they prayed and laid hands on them and sent them out. In chapter 16, Paul would come into contact with Timothy, as we'll study in a moment. He was impressed with the man and wanted to take him with him. He was a man of good reputation. He would have been effective in his journey, evidently, as Paul saw it. And it's very possible that he showed that he was taking him with him by the laying on of hands, and the eldership did as well and set them to the work, just like in chapter 13. And so the question remains, was the gift a spiritual gift or not? It may be. We're not told specifically. But I think we also need to realize that that word gift is used in various ways. Paul even uses it in 1 Corinthians 7, speaking about his own gift of continence, that is self-control in sexual matters. He could hold himself off from those things. But if you lack self-control, it's better for you to be married than to burn with passion. He alludes to his own ministry as a gift. And it's very possible that the gift is referring to Timothy's ability in the word, which would make sense when he says in 1 Timothy 4, don't neglect it, but stir it up. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6, study to show yourself approved. And so those are opinions, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. But one thing's for certain, the laying on of hands does not necessarily indicate the imparting of spiritual gifts. And if we're to understand the word of God, we need to think of this as we seek to establish the pattern and hold fast the pattern of sound words. So I know this was more of a, a technical study, something we could have extended even further. But hopefully it answers some questions that you may have had in the study of, of Acts. And I hope that you're encouraged to then investigate and think about the context and and reach the best conclusion you can reach by that on what the text is talking about. And that's the case for any kind of study, but especially in it pertains to matters of the Holy Spirit. And I imagine that there will be a time in the, the future that I'll, I'll preach a lesson on the Holy Spirit, especially as it pertains to Acts, because we see it throughout. And there can be some confusing things in that because of the false doctrine that's out in the world. But I encourage you to put your hand to the Bible and study it so that you can understand what the will of the Lord is. Before... 
We're dismissed to our classes. We're going to be led in a word of, of prayer.